0: let's start with some foundational observations. I want to turn you to four passages, one for each point here under the foundational observations. And maybe this is a way for us to approach the topic. I've never approached it, at least in teaching this way. So this may be helpful uh, for you perhaps as it is in my thinking, as I think through spiritual gifts. Uh, I want you to turn firstly to Acts chapter 17. This is the sermon of Paul before the Athenians. Uh, He is there speaking uh, probably some of the most fundamental truths that Paul has ever known for preaching because he's speaking to a non-Jewish crowd. They don't have the the, uh, advantage of the foundation of Old Testament teaching. So he is going back to the first thing, uh, creation, the activity of God, the nature of God. And this is a very helpful section. Now, remember, we're heading toward a biblical understanding of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, in the church age, as we normally think under the heading of spiritual gifts. But if we start here, perhaps we'll take some of the mystery out of it. I'm not trying to deny any of the uh, realities of the spiritual nature of God interfacing with us. As as creatures that are fallen and in many ways encased in in the natural realm, I understand that connection and and, and the, the, the 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 connection between God and and us. I, I understand that, but there's something so common about it that we are looking for something other than what the Bible presents us with. So if we start with these foundational observations in the Bible, perhaps uh, we can think more clearly than you ever have before about spiritual gifts. That's been my prayer as I prepared this. Acts 17, starting in verse 25, in the middle of his statements here that are very broad, very foundational in terms of just Christian theology, biblical theology. He says, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life. Just to even start with that, that means as an ongoing reality that God is one, let's just put it this way, who animates all things. If God were not actively participating in your life, or in the life of your non-Christian neighbor. They would not be alive. He gives them life. He gives them breath. Now, we could think like deists, and I often say that because deists think that the, that the God of, of the Bible just simply created the world, wound it up, created the laws for it to function, and then stepped away from it. But the Bible doesn't teach that. As he goes on to say here, he's actively involved, as we see all throughout the New Testament. God is actively involved. If God, as I often say, turned his back on creation, it would implode. It is, it is necessarily dependent upon God. And, and if you think about life, no matter what you did, if you drove your car here and had a conversation in the car, that could not happen without God animating you. You are dead without God. Not spiritually, I mean physically you're dead. He gives to, to all mankind, not just Jews, not just Christians, not just people of the Bible. Life and breath and everything. There may be intermediate agencies in the everything. You may have received an inheritance from your parents or grandparents, but in terms of life and breath, that's an immediate direct gift from God. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. So the agency of those first parents, of course, he's making every other nation, but he's involved in it. He's the active participant in making every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Even if you just took those truths and tried to really press those into the theology of most Christians today, it doesn't fit because they don't believe in a God that's that sovereign and that involved we need to start our thinking there as we think about spiritual gifts, that they should seek God, that's his purpose, and perhaps feel their way, interesting phrase, toward him and find him. Yet, it's not like he's he's removed. He's not, he's not the God of the deists. He is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's an inverted way to speak about verse 25. He gives to all men life and breath and everything. We are dependent. We are so dependent on him that we can, it's right to say, we, in, we, we live and move and have our being in him. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, though it's through the agency of parents and grandparents and all of that. The reality is we are sustained, created, upheld, nourished in every sense of that word by God. God animates all things. He animates all people. All life is the active, ongoing gift of God. Good place to start. Let's turn to Psalm 127, or you don't even need to turn there. You know the text, but at least jot it down. Let me read it for you because you know it. It says this, Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it, what's the rest of it? Labor in vain. Maybe you should have turned to it. I thought you all knew this first. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, they labor in vain. I turn it around and say, unless the Lord watches the city. So there's offensive work that we do. And unless the Lord is involved in that, unless that's his purposed and determined plan, you fail. And as a defensive measure... If you try to keep something, you try to defend something, unless the Lord watches over the city, if he wants to defend and protect the city, if he doesn't want that, then the watchman stays awake in vain. Let's put it this way. Letter B, God enables. And by enables, think about this, he, he takes whatever purpose is in your mind and accomplishes it in the car when you drove here. Your intention in turning the steering wheel to turn the drive column and turn the wheels of your car around a corner and not hit the curb or anybody else, that was your intention of the movements of your life. If God does not determine that, if he's not wanting you to clear the curb, you would steer in vain. If you tried to communicate with the person, I said you drove here, you talked to someone in your car, if you tried to get out of your mouth words that would get into the mind of the person you're talking to so that they would understand, you couldn't do that unless the Lord wanted that done. He's not only active in giving you life and animating your life. He is. I know that's very uncomfortable for us because it creates intellectual and philosophical conundrums in our thinking. But we have to say the Bible teaches from beginning to end the overarching sovereignty of God, the active involvement of God not only animates your life, he enables your life. You can't do anything and accomplish the purpose of your life, whatever it might be, large career or small sentence in a car car, ride over to church, you can't do any of that without God wanting it done. God is the enabler. He is the one who enables people. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Okay, now this is an odd text, and we've looked at it, or at least put it up on the screen, but it'd be good for you to turn in your Bibles to this and highlight it in your electronic Bible or underline it in your printed Bible so that this jumps off the page at you. Um, Need to see this. These are all the things, by the way, we don't think about. You got up this morning unless you're really sick or in the hospital or something, and you, you didn't even think about God giving you breath and life. You went to sleep, you know, unless you're still reciting the childhood prayers, which are very helpful in some cases. You went to sleep and you just thought, well, I'm going to go to sleep and I'm going I'm to stay alive for the night and I'll wake up in the morning. You didn't think about God's involvement. The Bible teaches God is involved. You did a lot of things today at work or at home or whatever you did and you attempted to accomplish something and you you, you went about that as though you could accomplish that. But in reality, you'd have to stop as a Christian and say, well, wait a minute, unless God wants that done unless he builds the house, unless he gets this sale, unless he creates this sermon, unless he feeds the kids, or whatever it is that you've done, then your work would be in vain. Now, those are things you don't think about. Exodus 31, 2 through 4. You might remember this from our Old Testament discussion of the Spirit's work in Old Testament people. God says to Moses, See, I have called by name Beelzeb, uh, Beziel, Beziel, the son of Erie, the son of Hur." From the tribe of Judah, I have filled him with the spirit of God. Now, there's something germane to our discussion in pneumatology. With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship to to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze. And in the margin, you probably have it if you have a reference Bible. But he recites this again in, in Exodus 35, verses 30 and 31. Talks about this artisan who's able to craft these things. He's filled with the Spirit of God, and in that text it says, and with skill and intelligence and knowledge and with all craftsmanship. This is God animating and producing a product that becomes, wow, this guy's good. You need to have him be the one who constructs the elements for this tabernacle. Now, you wouldn't think about that unless you stopped yourself as a Christian and consulted your theology when you hired an employee when you hired a consultant, when you, whatever, you you hired a plumber, you know, whatever it was, when you thought about it, you didn't think, well, I wonder if the spirit of God has animated this person and enabled this person to do a good job fixing the broken faucet. You didn't think about that. But when we see this text, you say, wow, that's the connection made in the Bible. In other words, the spirit gets credited. He is the active touch of, 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 God, the connection, the, 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 The nexus of God and humanity is the Spirit of God. God the Father on throne in heaven, dwelling in unapproachable light. Christ seated at the right hand of God. Who dwells among us? Who animates us? Specifically, we can talk in general terms about God, but specifically it is the third person of the Godhead who animates life. He enables people. He helps people accomplish whatever purpose it is that they purpose. And without God's involvement, it doesn't happen. And in this text, we just see the Spirit's involvement. Now, why was that brought up in this context? Well, because we're building the tabernacle. We're doing something that seems very sacred and important, and we want to do it right. So God says, I got a guy, and he's going to be really good at this, and he drops this bit of data. The Spirit of God is in him doing this. Now, you wouldn't think, if you're going to build a pulpit or a stage or a set, you wouldn't think, well, I need someone with the spiritual gift of craftsmanship. You wouldn't think that way. But according to the Bible, if you analyze the realities that we don't often think through in our lives, God gives life. He enables people to complete projects and he gives people those things to the extent that he could be legitimately credited as the source and empowerment and enablement of all of that. Okay. With that said, You could think about whatever you do at your job or in your home and you could say, if I've done this well, I can credit God's spirit with making me alive and producing a purpose that he wants done and if I've done it well, I can say, look at the the work of the spirit of God in my life to be a great whatever, mom, architect, accountant, teacher, whatever. I have to credit God with that. Now, how is that a lot different when it comes to the New Testament? Let's put it this way. When it comes to the New Testament and we talk about spiritual gifts, which sounds so it sounds mysterious, sounds weird, sounds like I got to have a weird feeling when we talk about that. And we look for that and seek that. And as a very, uh, I don't know, a, a society that craves this kind of emotional experience, we're wanting to have something emotional that will make us feel like, yeah, the spirit of God is involved in this. When we've just said God is involved in every breath, God is involved in accomplishing any task that you do, God is involved in having you do it well, so much so that He could be credited as the one filling you, guiding you, enabling you. That now takes, I hope, some of the weirdness, the quest, the thirst for weirdness. I don't think anybody thinks of it that way, but out of the picture. When I studied today, I prayed. I prayed quite a bit. I worked. I I worked through the scriptures. I I prepared outlines. I said, no, that's not right this way, that. I I prayed when I was done. I prayed as I I prepared to walk over here from my office. All of that. I thought about that, but there was no weird feeling about it at all. Why? Because I've done this thousands of times. I've prepared a message. I've come over here or to other pulpits, and I've preached it didn't feel anything anything other than wow that was a long day of study and prep and reading and all the rest i I didn't seek that and yet this would be if anything good comes out of this something we could all credit the holy spirit with the holy spirit used pastor mike to do something that doesn't feel very spiritual he gave us data that helped us understand biblical truth you could say that about anything that meets this criteria First Corinthians chapter 12, if we're going to now narrow this down to the work in the church, first Corinthians 12, we'll camp here for a little bit. Is this helpful? Do you see how this, you should always nod when I say something like that, even if you're not fully there in your feelings, just just do that for my sake, be helpful Should ask less of those questions. I, I think it's helpful for us on several levels and hopefully that will become increasingly clear as we go through this. But it's, it's a lot of what we talk about in other settings and in other biblical studies about the kind of artificial dichotomy that we try to make between spiritual and secular. We, we, like, we think about God and where's God in this now when we think about spiritual things like evangelism or teaching or discipleship or doing something in the church. But when I go to work, I don't think about that. Or when I do my mundane routines at home, I don't think about that. Or when I try to buy a house or whatever, those are the kinds of things we think, well, that doesn't take God's spirit when in fact it does. That's that's what i'm trying to say now when we apply it to the church the objective for god's people in the church Uh is in part looks like this verse four through seven There are a variety of gifts and by the way, I should say up at the top in verse one It says now concerning does the esv say this because I don't have that that text in front of me now concerning spiritual gifts Does the esv translate it that way the spiritual gifts, but I mean that's no not that not the editorial heading the actual first verse now concerning spiritual gifts is that what it says yeah the word gifts is not there it it actually is a different word than this word as we'll see in a minute i'll reveal these words because i think it's important to see what's here this is a broad topic it is the spiritual things this you could put it this way as we'll see the the work of the spirit in the church now concerning the work of the spirit in the church now he gets specific with some specific words there are a variety of gifts but the same spirit there are varieties of services but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who, here's our word, empowers them all in everyone. Do you see how that kind of matches what we've dealt with outside of the church in thinking through Acts 17, Psalm 127, uh, Exodus 21? Those are the things that we see God doing in everything, not only in the church, but out of the church. Matter of fact, none of those were in the church. Outside of the church, God is involved. He gets the credit. He animates. He enables people. He allows them to accomplish things. Now, within the church, he's saying, we've got all kinds of varieties of gifts, services, and activities. And it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given. Here's the phrase now. The manifestation of the spirit for the common good. We've kind of put on, when we read that, our spiritual gift hat, to think through spiritual gifts. And now I'm. it's something, woo. It, you see, we've talked about it in a very utilitarian sense, very practical sense, and you didn't have that feeling when you think about a guy crafting a, uh, you know, a, a, the Ark of the Covenant or some, you know, altar or something or building a pulpit. We wouldn't think about it, but when we think, why? It's the same process. It's the same equation. It's the same work of God. It's just the work we don't often connect, and yet the Bible's trying to get us too connected and give God credit for it. The emphasis here, as we'll see later, is varieties, varieties, varieties. Okay, let's put the text up on the screen. These are important words, and I think it's helpful, verse 4, what we just read there. Here are the words, and you can see now why this is important to reveal the words. There are a variety of charisma, charisma. What word do we get from that in our English language when it comes to spiritual gifts? Help me now. What? Charismatics. Charismatics. What, what is that word all about? Here's all that charismatic means. Up in verse 1, it's the word spirituals. Now concerning the spiritual things, the spirits work in the church. Here is the word charisma. It means something that was given to you graciously, a gracious endowment, a gift. I know we like to call them spiritual gifts, but in this text, what we're talking about is the manifestation of God's spirit in the church, verse 7, for the common good. And the first word is there's all kinds of charismas. There's all kinds of things that God endows people with. If you're uh, Beelzeal, then it's your craftsman, right? Aaron doesn't have that manifestation of God's spirit, but he does. See, this is the idea that should not bring the woo -woo to your mind. There's no woo about it. I got to stop doing that. But you understand that there's no weirdness about it. It just means, what does God enable someone by his gracious endowment to do? Well, Paul starts with the very basic. Your life is a gracious endowment. It is a gift of God. You can't give him anything. He gives you everything. The word give takes us to the Greek word charisma. He gives it. He gives you life. He gives you breath. He gives you everything else. Unless he builds the house, you try to do something in building a house, you wouldn't, you'd be unsuccessful. But he enables. The spirit gets credit for that. There are varieties of charisma gracious endowments and gifts there are varieties of diakonia 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 if you've been around church uh you grew up in church you had a group of people in the church called the deacons you say well i don't how a church doesn't have any deacons we got deacons we had deacons right you want to use the old greek transliterated word you can call them that we call them in the church what ministry leaders they're they're the ministry is why because that's how the words translated in the bible ministries or in this text services tasks That means something I'm doing for the good of someone else. We call that a ministry. Even in the old language, in terms of of political offices, we talk about the minister of this and the minister of that. still do that in Europe, right? All that ministry is, I am a, uh, like we say today, a civil servant. I'm serving someone else in what I do. There are varieties of charismas that God is graciously enabling people. There's a variety of things to do, ministries, tasks, things that help in the church. There are varieties of an ergama. Now, you get the word charisma, you think, oh, charismatic, and you think something that you shouldn't think. You think, woo, when you should just think, oh, okay, God graciously endows people with things. Diacona, diaconia, in this, this form of it, we often think of diakonos, which is the deacons. We think of, oh, someone who's doing something for the good of someone. Else. They're serving. What English word do we transliterate from this word, an What word do you see? Energy, right? something that takes energy. It's translated in our text, activities. It just means something that takes exertion, something that takes labor, something that takes work. It's hard to do. And when uh, Beziel, that's his name, right? Beziel is busy working on the parts of the tabernacle and crafting, you can see the beads of sweat on his brow as in the desert, he builds these things. And we wouldn't think, oh, woo look at him, spiritual, doing spiritual work. No, no, no. He's working at something and he's good at it and he builds the box and he builds it well. He's a great craftsman and artisan. Unless the Lord enables him and graciously endows him with that ability. Unless the Lord gives him success in building the box the way it's supposed to be built. Unless you recognize as a Christian and you should, or a God person, that God is the one doing that. You should give God credit for that. Then you've missed the whole point. In this text, We're saying there's a variety of gracious endowments. There's a variety of tasks that serve other people. There's a variety of labors, things that are hard to do. None of those lead us to the smoke-filled room of thinking about, oh, spiritual gifts. People come to my church, this church, our church, all the time, and they say, do you guys believe in the spiritual gifts? And they often say it like that. Oh, do you? Do you believe in it? I say, boo, yeah, I do. It's like, well, that's a weird question. What are you saying? That's like saying, do you guys do work around here? Do you serve anybody around here? Has God endowed you guys to do anything? That's the definition of spiritual gifts, if you want to call them that. All we're talking about is the Spirit's involvement in leading us to do things that are hard to do. They take work, take effort, and they produce something that's good and useful. Verse 7 says, for what? For the common good. We think about spiritual gifts within the church. We're talking about, did it benefit the church? That's all we're talking about. That's a different way to approach spiritual gifts, but I hope it's helpful. It's a, it's a way that I think will help us recognize what the Bible teaches about this category. All right. The observations regarding the Spirit's manifestations. I put that in quotes. Why? Not because it's not in the Bible, not because it's not a good phrase. It's because I want you to recognize with everything we just said and laying a foundation in the Bible, there's nothing weird about saying that. Any more than you driving through the business district of any town and saying, Wow, let's talk about the different manifestations of the Spirit for the common good of society or the common good of this city. Or going through some office in, in, that is a city office and saying, I wonder what kinds of manifestations of the spirit there are for the common good of this community among the civil servants of this city. Do you see what I'm saying? Nothing weird about that. It's just that when you read those words, it's weird. Why? Because we don't make the connection. We don't often recognize all those things come from God. God gives these things. He empowers people. He should get credit for these things. One day we'll see how dependent we were on him. Okay, the chart. When the Bible talks about it, It gives us lists. And if you've been through partners, you've seen this list, you've filled it in, you've looked up all these passages, and you've charted this out for yourself, and that's good. It's good to do that work, because you notice in the Bible, wow, I got three different lists in 1 Corinthians. I put all of them together here in uh, the first column apostles, prophets, teachers, miracle workers. That's getting weird now, Mike, more on that in a minute. Healers, that's super weird. Helpers, administrators, tongue speakers, that's the weirdest one of all it seems today. Interpreters of tongues, wisdom, knowledge, faith, trust or confidence, distinguishing spirits or discernment. You've got all of those right there listed in 1 Corinthians. You turn over to the book of Romans and you've got Prophets, teachers, servants, leaders, exhorters, and on down. If I want to make any observations, I should say this: First Corinthians ten, we got ten in the column. Or First Corinthians twelve, we got ten in the column. Romans chapter twelve, we've got seven ministries that are listed. In Ephesians, we have four that are listed, and in First Peter, we just have two categories: servants. I guess we could equate with serving and speaking just seems to be a category of what a lot of these do some of them you speak and that's part of what the good common good is the teacher obviously speaks the apostles speak the prophets speak so these are categories what do we learn from that this is something i harp on all the time and I'm certainly making this point in partners at great lengths in that chapter and that is there is no set list and most of us grew up being taught there's a set list if there's a set list it's really poorly communicated to us in the bible and if you happen to be in you know, Ephesus in that revolving letter, you don't even get all the ones that the Corinthians get. Oh, did they swap letters around? Yeah, but they didn't get every letter of the Apostle Paul. And so you've got to recognize we're not even getting the same list. That's why, well, we'll see this in a second. But let me say this by way of application. If you want to know what God's Spirit is going to do through you for the common good of your church, don't take any of those tests. I just don't think it's helpful because the premise of the tests are trying to get you to slot into one of the 18 things the Bible says. And that's the problem. We've, we've started with the premise that there are 18 spiritual gifts. That's not true. The emphasis on the New Testament, as we'll see, is not on a template, on a, on a set list. We can certainly learn from this that these are simply examples of the Spirit's manifestations we'll see. The question is, how is God going to use you Uh, for the common good in the church. The emphasis is on variety. That's my point. Let me just put the passage up on the the screen. Whenever we see spiritual gifts talked about, and by that I mean how's God gonna use you for the common good of the church, the emphasis is on variety. Not everybody's the same. Stop trying to think that everybody needs to be the same in terms of how they serve, Romans 12, four. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. There's a negative way to state it. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. Don't be factionized or or, or, or or divided by the fact that not everybody has the same endowments. One body Christ, individually members of having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. What's the word grace? Charis is the Greek word grace. It is a form of the word charisma. What's the point? God gives it. God enables. What's the point in the church? Something about the church that the world doesn't get. And that is that God gets the credit for everything. God gets the credit for what we do. We worship and praise God. What do the people in the world not do? They don't finish their architectural project in the, in the high rise in Irvine and go, let's stop and just thank God here for allowing us to do this. They're not doing that today. They're doing work that God enables. They don't recognize it. The church is called out from the world to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us. Our job is to make the connection. The world doesn't make the connection. So we are always emphasizing in the work in the church, God, look at God's gracious endowment in my life to do this, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us. That's just a piled on synonyms, if you will, gift, given, grace, same idea. Then let us use them. God has enabled us and he's graciously endowed us. Then let us do The things that, that are in accordance with that gift. If it's prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, if it's the one who teaches in his teaching, whatever it is, the emphasis is on variety. And of course, the underlying connection is we see God's involvement where the world doesn't. We recognize God and we thank him while the world doesn't. They're ingrates, we're not. They don't see God in the work, we do observations regarding the Spirit's manifestations. The emphasis is on variety, not a template, not a set list. 1 Peter 4.10. let me just put this passage up there. We're talking about the First Peter passage. It talks about serving and speaking. As each of us has received a charisma, something given by God, a gracious endowment from God. That was our wordy definition of that. Then let us use it to serve one another as good. Now here's a different word that is added. Stewards of God's, love this phrase, varied grace. One guy is an artisan, one guy's not. That seems somewhat secular because we're not thinking church. We're thinking Old Testament you know people that are building the tabernacle, but we recognize that guy's got an endowment that the next guy doesn't have him do it because he's good at it. And it's the spirit of God working in him. When it comes to the church, we're all supposed to recognize that whatever we do for the common good, is God's endowment. We are stewards of that varied grace. I don't have to do everything that you do in the church. I have to do the things that God has endowed me to do in the church, and I have to see myself as a steward. If I don't do those things, then I will be held accountable. As Paul says, it's required of a steward that he be found faithful. Every illustration of Christ regarding stewardship is always leading to accountability. I will be held accountable for whether what God endowed me to do to serve the church, whether I did it or not there'll be a suffering of loss if I don't carry out faithfully the gracious endowment in my life from God to you and likewise you to the church as well. Therefore, let's put it this way, letter B, every Christian should be utilized by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, you've taken, I hope, that mysterious woo-woo out of the idea of this, Now it becomes a question not of taking a test to find one of the 18 things that the Bible happens to mention regarding the use of people's talents, skills, gifts, endowments from God. We're not thinking in those terms. We're just thinking, I need to be involved. I have to. I should. It is my requirement. It's my stewardship. So let's take a little sidebar here and, and talk through three biblical prompts at the bottom of page one of your worksheet. I've talked a lot about this in the past, but I created a simple list here today, a new one. I've never taught it in these terms. So, again, if you've heard me teach on this, because we teach on this a lot, it seems, over the years, maybe this will be helpful. The reading that we just had in 1 John 3, what was that, yesterday's DBR? mean it's jumped off the page at me in terms of what I'm teaching on tonight. And that is that if you want to think in terms... Of God's work through your life for the good of the church, specifically the Spirit of God, and we understand it's not something I'm looking to feel something or something emotional or something, you know, something bizarre, something transcendent. It's just God working in me. Well, I want to think then about 1 John chapter 3 and recognize when I see a need, I got to meet it. That is God's work in me and through me in the church. So if if I want to think, well, what is it that I should be doing? Uh, I I guess I could speak in in the most basic terms and say, whatever need you see, do it. Meet, Meet the need. Here's how it's put in 1 John 3. By this we know love. There's the nexus. There's the connection. There's the germane point of God in me. We know love. By this, what do we know? Well, I relate to one who laid down his life for us. He sacrificed himself. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What does that mean? I go, what do I do? How, do go Be crucified? How, I can't do that. What are we talking about? The sacrifice of my comfort, my convenience, my possessions, whatever it might be. He gives an illustration. No, it's not being dragged outside the town to be crucified for someone. That would do them no good. But if you have the world's goods and you see a brother in need, someone in the church got a need and, and, and you can meet it. If you close your heart against him, if you say, yeah, I could, but I won't. How does the love of God abide in him? Now think that through. God's love is demonstrated by Christ's sacrifice. God wants to love the people in the church. He wants to use people to love people in the church. He loves his kids. He wants to love his kids through people. He loves you guys. If you are his redeemed children, he wants to teach you. He's not going to directly teach you. He's going to bring teachers into your life like me to teach you. He will love you through me. I've got to, in this case... Take the things that God has invested in me, utilize those to accomplish that. That's the love of God. If you have something and there is a need and you can meet that need, that's the activity of God's love in your heart. You may not feel emotional when you help someone out. You may not feel green fuzzies. Oh, I did a God spiritual thing. But that's the picture here. Little children, he says, let us love in not in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. I can feel... More spiritual, if that's defined as emotional, by talking about these things than doing them. Because doing costs. Words can make me feel something, right? Doing it may make me just feel sacrifice and and lack because I've given stuff away. But that's the picture. And it starts there. What are the biblical prompts when you think about spiritual gifts in the church? Sit in a corner and wait for a prompting and a move of God and emotional feelings and a tug and a vision and an idea? No, no, no. See a need, meet the need. What's the need? whatever the need is. That's why we do announcements. One of the reasons we do announcements, here's a need. We're going to do something. We need someone to meet the need. That's the act of God's spirit working among us as unspiritual as that may feel. That's where it starts. Let's put it this way too. I've never worded it quite this way, but you need to consider the opportunities. You need to consider the opportunities, which is different than meeting the need. At least the distinction I want to make is the one I see in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8. Now, of course, this is a vision Isaiah is having, but it's the paradigm that's helpful for us to consider. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? In this case, lots of options, at least the way it's worded here. Who's going to do this? And Isaiah says, he responded, here am I, send me. That needs to be the heart of everyone who sees opportunity. Now, here's the thing about our opportunity. I don't know whether I have the goods to meet that need. If I know I have a need or a resource and I can meet a need, then meet the need. Right? But there are other things that come up in the church that take a great deal that I may not assess in my own mind as having. But I'm going to consider the opportunity. I'm at least going to say to God, I, I, I'm willing, which is where I want to go in the third point. I want to live that anything, any place, any time attitude. I am willing. We just got back from a three-day planning session, extended session with our pastors. And part of what we do there in part is something I told Carlin when I got home every year. It's always that sense of coming to the issues on the table and saying, we're willing to do not only corporately, but individually, whatever it takes to meet the need, whatever that might be. I mean, there's nothing held back. If you, God want to change the structure, if you want to change the organization, if you want to change the lineup, whatever you want, we are willing And and that needs to be the heart, the anything, any place, any time, I think, of every person in the church. If, If there's a need and you have the resources, meet it. If there's an opportunity, you don't know, but I'm willing. Romans 12 starts with that perspective. I appeal to you, Paul says, brothers, by the mercies of God. And that's how John started it in 1 John 3. Consider that Christ laid down his love for us. You consider the great grace and mercy of God and what he did for you. Now respond to that right? He laid down his life for you. You lay down your life for the brothers. He says, now you're not laying your life down for a specific need. You're just starting with your whole life. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I am ready to sacrifice my entire self, holy, set apart, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is your reasonable act of worship as the marginal note will read there. And if you haven't Heard my argument for the very awkward Greek phrase here, or at least the difficult Greek phrase here. You can go to the sermon I preached on this passage. But it really has to do with the mercies of God, and the only reasonable response is to respond by you saying, Atapat, appeal to you, brothers, mercies of God, present your bodies, living, holy sacrifice, acceptable God. That's the reasonable act of worship. Now, you're not gonna be like the world. Not only do they not recognize God's involvement or give thanks for God's involvement, they live for themselves. We're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our mind, we want it to be more Christ-like. Christ lays down his life for people. Christ serves so that by testing, now I can put things out on the table. I can discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and teleos. It's just right. It's the perfect thing for me to do. When it comes to serving in the church, which is the kind of mundane way to talk about spiritual gifts, I want to do something for the common good. And I want to do that starting with an attitude of if there's a need, I'm going to meet it. If there's an opportunity, I'm going to consider it. And in my life, I recognize everything's on the table because I'm an adipat person because there's nothing else reasonable for me to do in light of what God has done for us. And then God makes clear the path for us. As we often teach when it comes to the will of God, if you're not willing to do the will of God, God will rarely make clear to you the most proper and appropriate investment of your life in ministry, in the world, in, in, in career, or whatever it is. You've got to be willing to do whatever God plans for you. That's a different way to word what we've talked about many times, and that is considering the Spirit's manifestation in your life. And when you do it, if you do it and do it well, you'll look back, I trust, as you ought to, and say, this was the Spirit's work in my life. All right, let her see. Well, Mike, you've made it sound very boring, but I know there's more to it, and you just glossed over it. Healings, tongues miraculous gifts. Okay, great. Let's, let's talk about some of that. The third observation about the lists in the Bible I want to make is that most of those things, those ministries on the New Testament list, they're not miraculous. Did you notice that? I've made this chart here for you and sh- showed you not even in its entirety are the apostles and the prophets here on the left-hand side are the entirety of their ministry supernatural, but a lot of them are beyond the bounds of what is natural. Beziel did not break any laws of nature by his work of the spirit in the for the good of the Israelite community in the desert. He just took out his tools, he was trained to do it, he was good at it, he was he was he was gifted as we might say. He did it and and nothing miraculous about it. Great work, fantastic. But there are some things on the left column here. Apostles, certain aspects of their ministry. Prophets, aspects of their revelatory ministry. Miracle workers clearly is a description of people that is a category that could overarch all of these actually are doing things that are bizarre. Healers, that's not normal. We're not talking about doctors here. Tongue speakers, which I've spent five sessions talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, if you want to get my teaching on that, called that series "Untwisting the tongues. If the jury's still out in your mind uh, on that, you certainly need to listen to those sermons. And the interpreters of tongues. That's one, two, three, four, five, six that either in whole or in part describe something supernatural. All the rest of the 18 aren't. And you can say, well, they're all spiritual. I get that. So is uh, Beziel doing his craftsmanship. So is getting up in the morning. So is going to work. Whatever you do is an endowment of God, the gift of God the empowerment of God, the enablement of God, but it doesn't break natural law. Okay. Now, the inset chart in the middle of this, which if you've been through even last year's systematic study of the church, we threw this chart up, but we want to talk a little bit about not the big chart, the, the outside chart, but the inside chart. The miraculous clearly makes spiritual gifts a topic of mystery and, 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 and weirdness, and the woo comes back when you start talking about breaking natural law. I get that. Some observations here as we talk about that. There are three periods in which the breaking of natural law takes place. What I'm doing here basically is showing that in the left-hand column, when when we talk about miraculous gifts, we really have to distinguish two kinds of miraculous gifts. Uh, we'll define these more fully in a minute, but GT1s and GT2s. GT, just my little way to refer to God's intervention. We clearly see it as a God thing. It's observed as a God thing. There's category one interventions of God, and there's category two interventions of God. Category ones literally break the laws of nature. There's no way around it. Category two are clearly the intervention of God, but it does not break the natural law. It may be providential. It may, the odds may be against it. The timing may be amazing. Clearly is directed as something that God has done, but that distinction is an important one to make. If we're talking about not only the GT2s and the GT1s in the Bible, when did they take place? They took place in three clusters in the coming of the Torah with Moses and Joshua, the coming of the prophets, the writing prophets of the Old Testament, starting with Elijah and Elisha, Uh, They were preaching prophets, but they were of the school of the prophets, the leaders among the prophets, and the coming of the Messiah in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles. GT 1s. If you go back and you look at everything that took place in the life of Moses and Joshua, you'll find there are 10 things that you can... You're forced to say this is described in the Bible as the suspension of natural law. This should not work this way. An axe head, well, no, no, not not, not, the sun should not stand still. Or anything that appears like the sun is standing still all day long, nothing like that should happen. That doesn't happen. That's not the laws of nature. Whatever that was, that's in the column. That's one of the things that happened in Joshua's day. When it comes to GT2s, there are 33 of those that you say the Bible credits God's intervention in this text, but if you look at it and you think about it, you recognize no natural laws were broken. There's nothing supernatural here other than the timing of what took place, and we call that providence. With the coming of the prophets, now we have a lot of things. The axe head floating, the dead boy that, that is raised from the dead, the, even the, the whatever. There's all kinds in the, in the ministry that begins the writing prophets, Elijah and Elisha. 21. GT2s, providential acts of God that are credited as God intervention, 45. The coming of the Messiah, look at the number jump here with GT1s, 46. 46 events in the life of the apostles in Christ, most of them obviously Christ and during the the period of Christ, where the laws of nature were suspended, broken, and 20 providential miracles. Now I'll call them all miracles, but let's make a distinction between these. And then let's make this observation. When it comes to the miraculous gifts, we've got 1,500 years from Moses through the end of the New Testament. You've got the GT1s, let's just think about those there. You've got 77 of the 86 GT1s recorded in these three clusters. You've got nine that are prior, and I count creation as one, right? I know that was a series of days, but that's one creation, creating stuff out of nothing in the creation week. Then you've got 18 others that take place in the pre-Mosaic period. I am not. I mean, we're going all the way back to Noah and, and Abraham and the patriarchs, but I'm talking about if you just look at all that time, 1,500 years of biblical history from Moses through the New Testament, you've got 77 of the 86 GT1s in three clusters. Why is that important? More observation, but first let's give some definitions and examples just so we, we're clear on this. GT is God's obvious intervention, right? We already got that. Something that the Bible credits as a God thing. GT1, God intervenes, breaking natural law. GT2, God intervenes without breaking natural law. All right, we got all that, Mike. Great. Here's some examples of these now. Uh, Luke chapter one, Mary has a baby. Would you all agree that was a GT1? Why? Because it doesn't happen that way. Ever. Can't. Ask a doctor. Not possible. That must be a suspension. We're missing some chromosomes here. We can't do this that way. Overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit did something miraculous. Broke natural law. In Luke one, Elizabeth has a baby. Okay, well... That was a God thing, too. Yeah, it was a God thing. God called it, said it was important, all about God. God was involved. Angel announced it. But there was something there that was going on that wasn't going on in Mary's life. It was unusual. She's old. It doesn't happen that way. But it did. And if you were to track this, you would recognize it's happening within the laws of nature. As unexpected and bizarre as it may be in terms of timing, it's a GT2. It's a God thing. Clearly a God thing, but... We've got a man and a woman making a baby. Acts 12, Peter escapes from the Jerusalem jail. If you remember that text, it talks about the angel of the Lord coming into the jail, shining a light, right? He has no flashlight. This is an angel now speaking to Peter. It says in verse seven that his chains fell off, fell off. The angel speaks to him, takes him out of the prison and then here's the text that says this in verse 10 the iron gate leading to the city it uh, opened on its own accord angels talking to you light shining in a dark dungeon gates opening on their own that's a suspension of natural law peter gets out of the jerusalem jail act 16 there's a jailbreak in act 16 where paul gets out of the philippian jail now that's credited as a god thing Timothy or Paul at the end of his life writes to Timothy and talks about how God had had delivered him out of all these problems in the area in which he was when he was imprisoned in Philippi and gives God credit for that. And it's clearly a God thing. Read the text, though, in Acts 16, and you'll see what opened the gates of the prison. Uh, An earthquake. There was an earthquake. How do earthquakes happen? Well, there's seismic activity under the ground. There's plates, there's pressures, there's faults. It's a slip fault, a thrust fault, whatever. You hear the lady from Pasadena talk about it every time it happens. That's how it happens. What's amazing about that? Well, that it happened where it happened, when it happened, when people were praying for him to get out of jail. But we have a logical, we have a scientific, we have a natural explanation for it, but clearly it's a God thing. Why? Because of the timing, the place, the setting, the result. But no one's going to argue that there was a suspension of natural law in the text. Do you see the distinction there? That's important. Theological facts as we think through this. God created the laws of nature. Now, if you don't agree with that, I don't want to know why you're here. God creates us and he sets up the world and he makes the natural laws. And while the deist affirmed that, we would affirm that he's still involved in making sure all the natural laws are doing what they do. He sustains, enables And and in him we live and move and have our being. He creates the laws of nature, though. When I drop things, they fall to the ground because of the laws that he created. Or all the pioneer scientists, that's all they were doing. As the scientists said in the early period, they did it for God's glory to think thoughts after God, as they said. They were trying to figure out God's creation, and that's what made them such great scientists. They were real scientists, not theoretical scientists, which now want to be detectives and not scientists. The different ballgame. That's a different sermon. Now, God made the laws of nature, and as he is over all things, he is transcendent, he is other, he is separate, and he has sovereignty over those things. So then we would say, God can break those laws. God has created the laws of buoyancy, but he can walk on water if he wants to, the incarnate Christ. He can make iron axe head float. He can do those things if he wants to, because he is the creator of of the universe, as Geisler, as there's all kinds of great... Even back to C.S. Lewis writing his book on miracles. It just makes sense that if there is a God, as defined even in our own thinking, naturally, ontologically as we would say, that, that God has the rights and sovereignty over his own laws. God created the laws, he can break the laws. This is the important proposition here. He is never surprised and he's never cornered. As a matter of fact, think through what we've said. He's involved in all things. God is never in a place where he goes, Oops! Peter's in jail. Darn it. What am I going to do? I got to get him out. So I'll cause an earthquake or in Peter's case, I will send an angel and I will have the angel work this thing out. God's never cornered. He's never surprised. Now think that through. If that's the case, every single miracle God does could be a GT2. He can work within the laws that he's made. And every time there's a need, he can say, Oh, I planned for that. Sometimes when our kids are little, they think we're, you know, doing crazy things because we've prepared for the things that we know they're going to do. And so we have all the solutions there and we're not miracle workers. We just think ahead and they don't. God thinks ahead because he knows everything. He knows the beginning, the end from the beginning. Therefore, if he's going to create a GT1, he will purposefully break those laws and he never breaks them out of necessity. God never needs to do a miracle. People were praying for uh, my daughter when she was diagnosed with, uh, you know, she was diagnosed with anencephaly initially that her brain didn't develop. And then they said, oh, it's, it's uh, not anencephaly, it's hydrocephalus, and she has spina bifida, and she's going to perhaps die when she's born because her brain is not developed in the back of her head, and it's squished by her ventricles, and she may not swallow, she may not be able to breathe, she may not be able to, if she is born and can breathe, she won't be able to walk, she's going to be paralyzed. And people started praying, and they prayed, unfortunately, a lot of them like God was cornered or surprised by it all. If God wanted my daughter to walk, let's think this through. He could have done something. He he must have been looking the other way when this whole thing was developing. When her spinal cord was zipping up, which is what happens in every baby internally, I mean, the very early weeks of development, that spinal cord zips up. that's, That's how it works if you want a spine that works. If it doesn't zip up, your spinal cord protrudes out of your back, and you're paralyzed from that point down on your spinal cord, which my daughter is. When you started praying for God to fix that, we're assuming what? Well, I don't know. I guess the theological thinking in some people was God was asleep at the wheel on that baby. He didn't know what was happening. Our theology would say, not surprised by that. Now, I'm still going to pray. God would help this problem that I've got. And I want want some kind of God intervention. And God did, by God's providential grace, he intervened. But what's the point? God was not surprised, was not cornered. God never breaks the, the rules of nature out of necessity because he's never surprised, because he's sovereign and he's always planning and he's in charge. Okay, with those theological facts in our minds, let's talk about GT1s as a category. When you think through what the Bible has to say regarding those rare occasions, uh, less than 90 GT1s in the Bible, most of them in three rashes, 77 of them in three clusters of time, very short periods of time, really, with Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles, basically three generations, we have to recognize that those are unique, they're planned, they're strategic. And when people want them and ask for them, they don't get them for the asking. Let's just start with that. Matthew 12:38 and 39. Here's an example of it. We'll see another passage that says the same thing in essence. Let's start with this one. Some of the Pharisees and the scribes answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Sign, by the way, that's the word in the scripture, which is not you know, a placard. It's, it's the breaking of natural law. That's a sign, a miracle. But he answered them, It's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, which, of course, was code for his resurrection, his death and resurrection, which, of course, is the suspension of natural law, it's the breaking of natural law. But in this case, they ask, they don't get it. You could say, well, they're asking with wrong motives. But are they really? They want to see whether or not this is the Messiah. Say, well, their hearts are bad or whatever. You can look all throughout the Bible and here's what you'll find out. God does these things strategically according to his will. He doesn't just respond to people when they ask for it and say, hey, they're yours for the asking, which is the premise of a lot of people who think about miraculous gifts. I want God to break natural law for me. We could spend more time on that for the sake of time we can't. They're rare. Have we already made that point. If you go back as far as you can go back, and we don't know when creation happened, but if you start the story, even if you just go back to the patriarchs, right? That's 2,000, 2,100 BC. You got 4,000, well, let's forget the 2,000 on this side. You got 2,000 years, 2,100 years from the stories of Abraham to the end of the book of Revelation where John is on the island of Patmos. We've got we've got 86 GT1s. You've got 192 gts in the bible but only 86 suspensions of natural law that are described now i know there are more than that but the ones that are accounted for that are described here's what happened here's what god did there's not many people think there's miracles on every pages of the bible i just that's helpful for you to go they're not if we want them in every generation of the church you've got to recognize that'd be the weirdest thing ever because that wasn't in every generation of the bible hundreds of generations in the bible without any reference to miraculous gifts they're rare what's the point letter c they verified the arrival of God's word. You cannot divorce God's strategic purpose, which always seems to be tied to, as it's described and it's explained, with the arrival of the written word of God. Example, let's talk about the spokesmen or the authors. There were the speaking prophets and the writing prophets. Example in the New Testament, since that's where our biggest rash of GT1s are. 2 Corinthians twelve twelve says the signs of a true apostle, because there were these False apostles that were claiming to be someone, but Paul says they're not anyone, and you can tell the difference between someone claiming to be an apostle. And again, what is an apostle? Apostolos is one who is sent like a like an ambassador with authority. And they don't have authority because they don't have what we have. The true apostles came to your town and they perform their signs. They practice these things among you. The signs of a true apostle were uh performed among you. What were they? They were they were practiced with, with, with what they did with signs and wonders and mighty works. Those things were done, and they verified the authority of the spokesman, in this case, the apostles. Acts 14, good example. Oh, I want you to turn there because it was a bit more than I could fit on the screen or wanted to. Turn, if you would, to Acts 14 real quick after you jot that down. There's two aspects to this that I should note for you. Here are the apostles coming to Iconium doing what they do. And that is starting with the Jewish synagogue. These people should know and be expecting the coming of the Messiah, like Simeon and Anna and the rest of the people we read in the New Testament at the beginning of the book of Acts that are waiting because they study the scripture. Well, he goes to the synagogues and he always says, okay, guys, the Messiah is here. Verse one. Now at Iconium, they entered into the Jewish synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So you had these proselytes from the hellenistic society coming in and they're trusting in christ and believing the truth of the prophetic scriptures verse two but the unbelieving jews stirred up the gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the lord who bore witness who did the lord to the words of his grace granting signs and wonders done by their hands what was the point of that? Well, we just read it. To bear witness to the word of his grace. He wants people saved, and the way to get saved is to put your trust in Christ. That's the only way to get your sins blotted out so you don't go to hell when you die. He wants people to recognize the authority of the apostles, that their word is true, so he granted them the ability by their hand to perform signs and wonders. The other thing I want you to point out here is verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. What? There are signs and wonders being done by the guys that are saying you need to trust in Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Messiah and that he can save you and forgive your sins. Yeah, I don't believe it. But they just did miracles. Eh, I don't I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp that doesn't believe it. Does that remind you of a statement that Jesus made in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? When the rich man said, please send someone back from the dead to warn my brothers not to come to this place of torment. What did Jesus say? Even if someone comes back from the dead. Not going to believe. They got the scriptures. They should believe that, and they're not going to be convinced by a miracle. We often overrate even the effect of the miracles. All you have to do is study the 200 God things in the Bible, 192 God things in the Bible, and you'll recognize when you see those, oftentimes people are persuaded, and oftentimes they're not. Some sided with the Jews, and others with the apostles. I'm thinking if they're doing miracles, I'm siding with the apostles. That just shows a lot of this is not intellectual opposition, it's volitional, moral opposition which we still have today, which, didn't we not say this just recently? I said, when you are sharing the gospel, I've said this a million times, and they have all these intellectual questions, what are you supposed to say? Hey, if I could answer every question you're asking right now to your intellectual satisfaction, would you trust in Christ and become a follower of Jesus today? What's the answer four times out of five, at least in my experience? Nah, I don't want to. So This is about wanting to, then. This is not about the intellectual questions you have. See, that's the problem so often, problem of the heart, not a problem of the brain. I'm thinking, if you can do a miracle and suspend natural law before my very eyes, I'm intellectually convinced. Nevertheless, that is the purpose, according to verse 3, which worked in part and for some did not. And then, of course, their message. It verifies the spokesman and, and shows their credentials, and it also verifies the message itself. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, that's on the screen. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We're in trouble if we neglect it. It was declared at first by the Lord, and then it was, here's another word, you could, you could substitute for verified or, 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 or sanctioned. Here, it attested. It was attested to us by those who heard while God bore witness. How was it attested? Because God was in working in these people by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts by the Holy Spirit distributed. Now, here's another point that we've already made, according to his will. Here's the thing about people wanting these things for the, for the asking. These are all according to God's will. And God, at least by the pattern of his will in the Bible, seems to have a very specific will and purpose for this, which is strategic, which happened only some 87 times, at least that is verified as a description of a miraculous suspension of natural law in three clusters, always seeming to be associated with the spokesmen or messengers or the authors of biblical scripture, of the writings of the scripture. A test to verify. What was the word over there in verse chapter 14? To bear witness to the word of their grace. Now, you've probably heard that, but there's a very important thread throughout the scripture emphasizing that over and over again. So there's not miracles on every page. People read miracles, I want to do the miracle. The Most of the things described in the scripture, which I'm sure you're going to give most press to the most spectacular gifts. Though they're there, they are the minority, even in the lists of New Testament gifts. How is God going to use people in the church for the common good, the miraculous signs associated with the coming of scripture? So what should our expectations be then? Post-apostolic expectations, and let's just pause on the word post-apostolic. What's the difference? Who cares? There's an apostolic church in the phone book, you know, is it really post-apostolic? According to the Bible, it is. And we don't have time to develop the whole argument, but here's one of many places we go to see in the scripture, if you're open-minded, that the the apostolic age is over. He says, you're no longer strangers speaking to the Ephesians. You're no longer strangers and aliens. You can be a Greek, you can be a barbarian slave, doesn't matter where you're from, Scythian, but you're in this thing now, God's work. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. God's household. Yeah, we're picturing a building now in the metaphor. Yes, you're being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You could have said that in the Old Testament, in the latter Old Testament, that the Old Testament community of people who are trusting in God, symbolizing their coming forgiveness by the sacrificial system, their community was built on the foundation of the prophets. Now you add the messengers who had the authority of Christ, the apostles and prophets. The church is being built on that, Christ himself, of course, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The point of this is the foundation of the building was the writing of the apostles and prophets. That is the foundation. To be an apostle, for instance, you had to have witnessed Christ himself, the resurrected Christ, Acts 1. There's a lot more we could go to to prove this point. But yes, we live in a post-apostolic period. The signs of the apostles were signs and miracles and wonders. What should our expectations be? Okay, living in a post-apostolic world, well, you should expect divine help. Now again, what does that feel like? Uh, we can start with the broadest you know, thought of all, which is how we started. How did it feel to get up, out of bed this morning? Well, it was hard. Okay, but you succeeded. You brushed your teeth, you combed your hair, you got to work, you got to church, you got dressed, you did it. How did you do that? The Bible says you did it because of the enlivening, animating work of God. You did it by the, by the, the enablement of God. You succeeded in getting here tonight because God's involvement. You should expect that on steroids for us because we're God's kids as it's put in passages like Hebrews 13, five and six. Keep your life free from the love of money. That's the fuel for most people. You should be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you, speaking to this first generation church. It's actually second generation church. It's still in the first century though. I will never leave you or forsake you. Why? Because God's with me. I can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Therefore, I'm looking for God's help all the time. I want it. I pray for it. If you could see my prayer life, you'd probably be shocked at how much I'm praying for God's help. All the time, God help, God help, God help. My prayer journal is got help in it a lot. You'll see the words. I recognize my dependence on God, and I'm praying for his help all the time. I'm not only praying for it, I'm expecting it because I know he wants to do good for his church. I know he wants to do good in the world through the church, and so I'm praying for God. Empower me, enable me. Let me do good today for the kingdom. I'm praying for it. I'm expecting it. And you ought to, too. Keep God's goals in mind, though. Charismatic movement and the Pentecostals, when they think this through, they say, I do want God's help. Unfortunately, even as we just said in this passage, uh, you can't twist that into, well, give me more money then. In that text, it says you shouldn't worry about the money because you should be trusting in God. And they'd say, well, not money through those sources. God's going to give you money through other sources. You've got to remember the goal is not for you to have a lot of money so that you have no needs or concerns or problems because as the Bible says often, like in First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, you ought to arm yourself with the same way of thinking of Christ. And what was that? Well, he suffered in the flesh. Now, I should be prepared in my Christian life to suffer in my flesh. Think this through. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of their time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Some interpreters want to see this as whole life. When you suffer in the ultimate way, you become a martyr, then you're done with sin altogether. But I think this is much more uh, helpful because we live in everyday episodic, you know, from this problem to that. And, And the reality is when I'm willing to suffer and say no to the passions of my flesh... That hurts, but that's a decision to stop sinning in that regard. The point is, in this world filled with sin, filled with temptations, I need to be ready to suffer. Christ suffered, and I need to be ready to suffer. So i got to keep God's goals in mind when it comes to what his goals are. Because people want miraculous gifts not to make their lives more difficult. They want miraculous gifts what for? Make their lives more comfortable. Make their lives better. Make their lives more, you know, whatever, convenient. So I'm keeping God's goals in mind. God never promised me that. God, as a matter of fact, says prepare yourself to suffer in this world. Expect God to keep his rules. Let me say this on a couple of levels. God made rules. Did he ever break them? Yes. Does he have the power to break them? Yes. But he's never cornered. He's never surprised. He only broke them for very specific reasons. The only hints we have in the Bible is it's always seeming to be connected at least 90% of the time, with the coming of the scripture or the spokesman having the authority to speak authoritatively for God. And every other time and in every other generation for thousands of years, he's always keeping the rules that he made. So I expect him to keep his rules, even the undesirable ones. And that's where I need to, I need to underscore that because often the charismatics and Pentecostals that want God to break natural law all the time want to do it to the exception of the rules that God made concerning things like, I don't know, Genesis chapter three, when it says, cursed is the ground because of you. That's the promise of God. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That's even before we're talking about becoming a Christian. This is just life from the beginning. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat, uh, and, you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat your bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So when your husband comes home and, and, and complains about his day, and then the wife responds with all the terrible things that happened in her day. Whatever, that's a terrible scene, but you've had it. You realize life is tough. You, you can lean back and say, oh, God's keeping his promises. Because in reality, that's the promise he made. And then one day you're going to get sick and die, and you're going to tell your wife, I'm dying. And she'll sit back and say, God's keeping his promises. You're dust, and to dust you're going to return. None of that is fun and happy. But we're always calling on God to suspend natural law to to the exception of the rules that he's made, which include life's going to be hard, you're going to suffer, you will get diseased, you will die. Not to mention the fact that if you become a Christian, arm yourself now. To suffer, because if you're going to follow Christ, he suffered. Expect God to keep his rules, even the undesirable rules that he made. I expect every faith healer to die, because that's God's rule. You die, along with every non-faith healer, even as he helps you. Now, I'm expecting God's help. I pray for it all the time. When I pray for it, my expectation is for him to help me, and I expect him to help me for the common good of the church, and even common good in the world. I expect his help, but I expect him to help me by keeping the rules. Example even as we're getting off the end of the apostolic period in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5:23. Here is Paul responding to Timothy's frequent ailments. He says, "No longer drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. No longer drink wine, um, no longer drink water only." but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent I'm thinking you know this is a problem for people that want God's miraculous intervention to heal everyone number 1 Paul doesn't create that expectation in Timothy's mind not to mention that Timothy is a preacher of the gospel and he's got frequent ailments what's wrong with that guy his faith must be weak Paul never says that as it relates to this problem in his life uh, you know, the other sidebar that I guess I, I ranted on the other week that got some of you going, uh, it, this does show that he didn't drink wine, which, by the way, you had two choices. You drank water, or you drank water and wine. Here was a pastor refusing to do that, and Paul says, I, I, I know. I don't want you to drink a lot of wine. Drink a little wine, though, would you? The medicinal effect for your stomach will help you. Well, that's not a miracle. That's working within the laws of nature. Paul wants his frequent ailments to be eased, and that's a good thing. We pray for that. That's a natural thing. And he's saying, use a natural means to get that done. Now, as we read in the Old Testament, we see, well, we, I just think of one specific example of the king uh, seeking the physicians only and not the Lord. Though we use natural means to see God meet our need, I want help from God and I'm expecting him to help me, but I'm expecting to keep his rules as he helps me. I need to recognize that though I'm seeking God the natural means by which God to solve the problem, I realize that God is the one doing it. I seek him in it. I'm praying for his help and I'm expecting him to keep his rules. I, I often think of this example and sometimes the visual is helpful. Here's a wallet full of money. A lot of people in church obviously say, I don't have any money. I need money. That's what your wallet looks like. You want it to look like that. You need it to look like that. You got to pay your rent, but your wallet looks like this. So you pray for God to fill your wallet. This is a need. God is your helper. God will help you. Do you pray about finances? i bet you do, just like I do, just like everybody does. Unless you're, you know, I don't know, independently wealthy, then you're praying how to invest it. But most of us are praying for enough of it to to pay for the kids' braces or whatever we're doing. So we pray for God's help, and we want our wallet to go from this to this. The question is, what is your expectation? Is it like this? You pray, you close your eyes, then you open your eyes, hoping it looks like that. And then you close your eyes, God, please, fill my wallet. Is it that? No, not yet. You don't pray that way. And your expectation shouldn't be that way because that would be a suspension of natural law. And God rarely did that. And he did that for the purpose of verifying the coming of the word of God. So we pray with an empty wallet for God to fill our, this is a dumb illustration, but fill our wallet with a actual person involved. Maybe it's an extra job. Maybe it's delivering pizzas. Maybe it's, uh, you know, Uncle Jim who dies. That's a a bad way to put it. (laughs) And, and, and solves the financial problem by bequeathing me money. The point is this. I'm expecting natural means to solve the problem. But when God does it, do I call it a God thing? Absolutely. Would I even call it a miracle? Well, as long as they understood what I'm saying. If you read, I, and we read biographies all the time, how God gets people to the brink of thinking, I cannot make it, and then God makes it happen. Did he materialize money in someone's wallet? No, it didn't happen that way. But he did provided in a means that is was unthinkable, was against the odds, the timing was was impeccable, it was a God thing. All I'm trying to say, if you want to go from no money to money, there has to be a, a an agency that you would expect would be God's rules being kept. That's what I'm trying to say. Letter D, beware of the next miraculous wave. People talk about the If you're really up on your theology, you think back to the Wimber third wave of the Spirit. And what that meant was we want to see the miracles of God. All I'm saying is when the real miraculous wave of the suspension of natural law takes place, you should be concerned. Let me rapid fire for the sake of time, give you three passages from the scriptures. In the Olivet Discourse, Christ said this, For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and the context here is the end of time, and perform great signs and wonders. Now again, those are the technical words we're talking about for the suspension of natural law so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Think about that. The forecast from Christ is, when you see these people, they're going to come. And one of the things they're going to do to try to be- deceive people is they're going to do great signs and wonders. Second Thess, 2 Thess 2.9, the coming of the man of lawlessness. It says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity, not of God, but of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders. Well, they're false. That means they're not real. No, 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 that's not what it means. It means they're not of God. Here's, here's the proof of that. Revelation 13. Rev 13, 13 and 14. It, that's the beast, if you read the, the, the context. This is the beast arising out of the earth. There's one from the sea. You Remember all that? This is the, the one who comes alongside the Antichrist. This is, and he performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven in front of people, right before their eyes. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. So God is going to allow another wave of miraculous gifts. It will not, the next wave will not be the working of the Spirit of God to suspend natural law. The signs and wonders will be from the work of the enemy. And that's, I mean, we're warned. There's three passages real quick to say, watch out. See, that's why I often say, if Benny Hen next door actually starts pulling off real miracles, you should be concerned. Because the Bible says the next wave of miraculous events, the suspension of the GT1s won't be GT1s, they'll be ST1s. Did you get that? Right now, he's not allowed at least in the, the biblical chronology that's an argument from silence but here it seems to be that he is allowed at this particular juncture in God's prophetic plan to do the gt which are st things the satan things that suspend natural lastly you need to be impressed with God's ongoing gt ones are there gt ones yes there are but they're not the kind of ooh that you think they they don't they don't have the splash of the apostolic signs and wonders but they are nevertheless Supernatural. Read this just what a couple days ago in our daily Bible reading. Turn to this one if you would, too, real quick. We're almost done. Second Peter chapter one. Oh, and I gotta say, this is a, if you read the Greek text in this verse, verse nineteen, you will. Um, if you're a first year student, you will have a hard time translating it. It is ambiguous. Greek, as I often say, highly inflected, and often the the word order doesn't play a big role in how you interpret the text or translate the text. In this case, there's ambiguity, and though it's a highly inflected language, and usually it's very exacting, here's one of those rare examples where the, the text is unclear. Now, if we all sit around with ESVs, hopefully we would think, well, we'd all have the same translation here. The problem is the ESV has been corrected, and I say corrected, been adjusted like three times now. So if in the beginning of your Bible you have, for instance, the first edition, which I forget what year that is, but but then the next one I think was the 2007 text edition, that may be the first one, the 2011 text edition, which is the latest one, will translate this differently. Let's read it together after all of that set up. Verse 16, let's start to get some context. Peter says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When were they eyewitnesses of his majesty? Well, remember the transfiguration? It says, for when he received the honor and glory from God, the voice that was born to him from the, by the majestic glory said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well, we ourselves heard this very voice. Born from heaven, it was a miracle. For we were with him on the holy mountain. We saw the transfiguration. Now here's verse 19. Now, if you have an ESV text edition, 2011, it'll read like this. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Do you read it that way in your Bible? You may have the 2007 text edition, which said, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Do you see the difference there? Because there's ambiguity in that phrase. This is either Peter saying, we saw the eyewitnessed thing on the mountain, which more fully confirms in our mind the prophetic word, or he is saying, you know what? I saw the eyewitness account of Christ on the mountain, but you know what? We all have a more, how does it, how is it translated? We have a more sure thing. We have something more clearly, uh, 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 definitively, objectively powerful in terms of God's authoritative voice. And what's that? The prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention, like a lamp shining in a dark place. The reason it may be the latter Maybe the 2007 text was right and the Net Bible and others that translate it that way is right, is because the emphasis goes on to fall on on the prophetic word. Look what he says. It's it's like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart when Christ appears, knowing that this, first of all, that no prophecy of of scripture ever came from one's own interpretation. There you might read contextually the contrast of one's experience, one's eyewitness account. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the miraculous GT1? They called it with specificity before it happened. And the other reason, I said there were two reasons. The other reason is that some people think it's the latter, or I lean toward that way, is because the wording in the text, in, in the way that the Greek text is laid out. And that is the more sure, babios, I think is the, the Greek word, the more sure comes at the beginning of the phrase. And, and the, the point is not, hey, uh, the prophetic word is made more sure. That's the wording of the 2011 text edition. But in the Greek text, it's flipped and over. And that is, there's something more sure, the prophetic word. I wish it were clear in the text. It's one of the rare times the very exacting language of the Greek New Testament is unclear, but it means one or the other. Either way, the focus ends in this context with... The prophetic word. You'd do well to pay attention to it. Why? Because it's God's authoritative word. You can read it and see the things that God promised actually coming true. And all we need to know, if you want real proof right now, is to be able to verify that the things written in the Old Testament were actually written before the things in the New Testament happened if you just want to look at Messianic prophecies. Now you have a prophetic word that speaks a miraculous which is what god is the only one who can call the future with specificity you can guess at it god knows it the end from the beginning as isaiah says that's why we know god is god because he has that ability to do that out of time what i'm saying is the miracle of prophecy you want to be impressed with god's ongoing gt1 is there any gt1 well yeah there's the prophetic word of god which is even trumping, I think, in the text, although it may be that he's saying it even adds to it, is that there was the eyewitness of the apostles. Secondly, and we don't have any time to read this, 1 John 3, I use that because we just read it, uh, transformed lives. You see lives that are changed. I know you can say, well, you know, the the 12-step program changes people. Maybe it's not God. When you see the kind of seed abiding in people that radically transforms their being from the inside out, That's certainly a work, a miraculous work, a GT1 of the Holy Spirit. All right, out of time. Let's pray. God, thanks for helping us through this outline. Thanks for providing all that you provide for us. Thanks for the gift of your Spirit. Thanks for his work in our lives. I pray that we would be less weirded out by the Spirit's work in the, in, in the pages of the Scripture because we recognize that most of what we see and most of what we experience is the things we experience every day, and that is that we live and we move, we exist, we get breath and life and everything else because of the provision of God. And so, God, when we serve in the church, as we see the Spirit work through us, the manifestation of the Spirit, the very grace of God being poured out among us, Let us give you credit for those things. That's certainly why we're called out from the world to recognize the God connection and see that you're the God that deserves all glory, all praise, all thanksgiving for doing the good things that you do. So God, work through us for the common good. Let us meet needs when we see them. Let us consider every opportunity as a possibility for our lives. And let us say to you that we're living sacrifices at a pat ready to do whatever it is that you might make clear to us and like us. God, thanks for this time of study. In Jesus' name, amen.